Sydney is a city of four million people. It's situated on what Australians believe, including me, to be the uh, most beautiful harbour in the world. This is the most isolated continent, the most isolated place in the world. 7,000 miles over there is the United States of America. It's a you can get a direct flight and it takes 14 hours non-stop. Now to get to Europe from Australia, from Sydney here, takes 21 hours. It is the largest island continent in the world with a population of only 20 million people. It's about the same size as the continental United States of America. Whereas America has 300 million people, this place has got 20 million people. It has become a multicultural society. You see people from all different parts of the world living in Sydney. I'm John Carter, standing on the north shore of Sydney Heads, saying God bless you and welcome today to the Carter Report. Once upon a time, there was a church member named Mr. Mean. Now, Mr. Mean didn't like boys and girls, didn't like young people, and he didn't like giving offerings either, even though he was quite a rich man. Every Sabbath, it was the same $1 bill that he put in the offering plate. And this Sabbath was no different. The collection was announced, he pulled out the $1, and then he felt a tap on his shoulder from the man behind him, and he turned and the man behind handed him $100 bill. And Mr. Mean thought, oh, well, if he wants to give his money away, I'll put it in the plate, which he did. Another moment went by, and he felt the same tap on his shoulder, and he turned his head, and the man behind him whispered in his ear, that was your $100 bill. It slipped out when you, as you took out the one dollar. <laughs> of course, Mr. Mean wasn't too happy. And of, unfortunately, that's how many, a lot of people like Mr. Mean are. They're not very happy. Unfortunately, they don't know the joy of giving and helping. Sometimes we can feel quite overwhelmed by the numerous calls for help. There's the family where the father is out of a job. A member of the family has a serious illness and this results in huge medical bills. There are other families where the father is in jail. We also have many war veterans who have been left lonely and depressed. And of course we can't forget the orphans and the millions of people around the world dying of malnutrition. Sometimes we are tempted to ask, why are there so many people who need our help? Those of us who read and believe the Bible know that there is a great battle going on between good and evil. And tragically, as in any war, there are many casualties and victims. And those of us still standing, it's our responsibility to help those who have fallen down. And Jesus gave us some pretty plain directions. In Luke 14, 13, he said, when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. And in James 1.27, what God the Father considers to be pure and genuine religion is this, to take care of orphans and widows in their suffering. And it wasn't just the physical problems that Jesus was concerned about. We read in Matthew 9.36, when Jesus saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion upon them because they fainted with the trials of life. They were scattered abroad like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus was and is full of compassion for the whole human family. And as his followers, we can do no less. Here in our church, we have been trying to do our part, both in our community and overseas. And for a number of years now, we have been helping the National Childhood Cancer Foundation and uh, last year we collected over 100 beautiful teddy bears, and this year we're going to try and do the same. Now, you didn't know teddy bears go to bed with their pajamas on, did you? And if you say no, well, how do you know? Who's been there to watch them go to bed? <laughs> and then this year, we're also joining the angel program here in the community around our church. And it's called the angel program because it helps poverty-level families and homeless people. 
and we're going to try and help with practical gifts and some cheer to people who need some neighbourly help. And then many of you have heard of our Operation Yellowbird for the former Soviet Union. And isn't he gorgeous? I just love him. He's so beautiful. As most of you know, we have been visiting orphanages and children's hospitals in the former Soviet Union since 1991. There are thousands of children who need our help. Some of them carry the HIV virus. There are hundreds, probably thousands, who are sick as a result of industrial pollution and careless handling of radioactive materials. There is no greater joy than giving practical help and love to God's little lambs. And if you would like to help Operation Yellowbird, especially those of you watching on television, write to us care of the address on the screen. You know, one of the most, or the, my favorite stories in the New Testament is the story of the Good Samaritan that Jesus told. You remember how the man going down to Jerusalem was attacked and left for dead. The Good Samaritan came along and picked him up and helped him. And you know, Jesus was teaching us that every person in need is our neighbor. They're, they are our brothers and sisters, and we should help them. But there's a greater story here. You and I, we are that man lying on the side of the road. We have been beaten and bruised by sin and Lucifer. And then Jesus comes along. He picks us up. He is the chief good Samaritan, isn't he? He picks us up, washes us in his own blood, makes us clean, and then he carries us safely home to his kingdom. Dear friends, let us help those who need our help out of gratitude for what he has done for us. Let us love those who need our love. Would you please take out your Bibles? Would you hold them up? Would you repeat after me these words? that you probably know of by heart by now. This is my Bible. This is God's Word. God has a message for me today. This message will give me everlasting life and make me a better person. I now open my heart to receive God's word. Receive God's word. Amen. Amen. I have today an amazing message. In fact, as I prepared it, it amazed me. <laughs> I've discovered some amazing truths. Some of those truths I'm not going to talk a lot about today. But I'm going to allude to some of these things. But today I'm going to talk about the clash of titans. The war of the galaxies. The topic today is the great controversy. And today I'm going to share some new insights with you, such as I think perhaps you've never thought about before. So I talk about the great controversy between light and darkness. Eons ago, a war started in the universe. Now, once upon a time, when people read the Bible, the universe was what they could see with the naked eye. Maybe a few hundred, the most a few thousand stars. It wasn't very, very big. NASA came out with a revelation recently through the Hubble telescope, my son David showed me the results of it and I want to tell you folks something. We have no concept of the bigness of this. Now there has been a theory proposed to try to justify random choice that there are billions and billions of universes. Scientists who say that say, well, we've got to believe this because how could come that this one just got lucky. There's got to be billions and billions of others. At least there's got to be a quadrillion others. And you say to them, what's the evidence? And they all say there's no evidence at all, but we believe it because 
we've got to believe it to keep on believing that there's no such thing as an intelligent creator in the universe. Everything is random. But recently, with the Hubble Space Telescope, they came to the conclusion, at least scientists are coming to the conclusion, that this universe is the universe. If today you were to start traveling at the speed of light, which is 186,000 miles a second, which is fast, if you traveled at the speed of light, just continued straight on, you'd get back to this spot in 86 billion years. 86 billion years at the speed of light to take a trip around the universe. No wonder C.S. Lewis said, your God is too small, talking to many Christians. In the universe, when I first started to talk on astronomy, they reckoned they knew how many galaxies they were. They said 200 million. That, that was when I started in evangelism, 200 million. Now the figure is billions and billions and billions and billions, which leads us to the concept that out there, there are trillions and trillions our planets with intelligent beings living on those planets. Now most scientists, and uh, I'm talking now about scientists who are believers in the Bible, Christian scientists, not Christian scientists, but scientists who are Christians, <laughs> uh, believe that the universe came into being 13 billion years ago. Well, people say, well, that can't be so because the Bible says the universe is 6,000 years old. No, the Bible doesn't say that at all. No scholar believes this. But whether you believe the universe is a few thousand years old or if you believe what the Hubble Space Telescope proves that it's 13 billion years old, there's one thing that is a subject that you can't argue about. Everything is incomprehensibly vast. Now, scientists have discovered this also. This was reported, and I've talked about this to the Russian people. Scientists have discovered that the universe is fine-tuned for life. You say, well, of course, well, well, no, not of course at all, because people have said, the scientists have said, the evolutionists have said, it's all random, you see. Researchers have calculated that after a big bang, unless the ratio of matter and energy to the volume of the universe, a value researchers call omega, was within one quadrillionth of one percent of the ideal. One quadrillionth of one percent? A quadrillionth? How big is that? It's so big you can't comprehend it. Runaway relativity would have rendered the cosmos uninhabitable, either too scrunched and distorted for life or too diffuse for stars to form. Other natural constants that trace back to the Big Bang also seem strangely fine-tuned in favor of a universe amenable to living consciousness. These are people who once were atheists talking. A lot of these people were once rank atheists. Alan Sandage, who was an atheist, and the world's greatest astronomer, has said, I can no longer be an atheist. There is evidence upon evidence that the universe in its incomprehensible vastness is strangely fine-tuned fine for life. 
And even if you and I don't understand about the quadrillion and all the rest of the stuff and the Big Bang, and even though we may say, oh, well, look, you know, I don't need to know this. There's something we can all agree upon. The universe is incredibly big and it was made for life. Now, a few hundred years ago, as I mentioned, we thought there were a few thousand stars and the earth was the center of the universe and the sun revolved around the earth. In fact, in America, there is still a flat earth society. Did you know that? People say the earth is absolutely flat. Why do you believe? Well, the Bible says it. The Bible talks about the four corners of the earth and that proves that it's flat because a circle doesn't have four corners. People need to be very, very careful how they interpret the scriptures, don't you think? Mm -hmm. We now know and we can see that the universe is incomprehensible in its vastness. And a war between two mighty beings started in the long ago. And the consequences of that war are enormous. I want you to turn to Revelation 12 and verse 7. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 7. Revelation 12 and verse 7, the Bible says, And there was war in heaven. It's amazing, isn't it, that war broke out in the galaxies and the Bible teaches that there are two leaders in this war. I want you to listen very carefully to what I'm going to tell you. The Bible talks about the creator God. The Bible says in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And you know the story of the burning bush and how Moses had a divine encounter with God. And when he got over to the burning bush, God the creator spoke to him and God said the words, tell the people my name. I am that I am. I don't understand that because nobody created God. People say, well, that I can't understand it. I don't believe it. Bless your heart, there's a lot of things that I don't understand that I believe like electricity. I don't understand it. I don't know anybody who really understands what electricity is. But the creator of the universe does not dwell in time. Time dwells in him. In the book of Isaiah, you read a passage that Isaiah actually saw the Lord high and lifted up. And the Bible says, his glory filled the temple. That being was the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. He actually, in some way, saw God. Then in the book of Daniel, you know in the judgment passage in Daniel chapter 7, the Bible says the ancient of days took his throne. <laughs> the ancient of days. God has been there for thousands and millions and billions and trillions of years. God was there before there was time. Did you know that? You know the time has only existed since the universe came into being? God predates time. And this God cannot be described adequately. He is all-powerful. He is all-wise. He is everywhere present. And he knows everything that can be known. The Bible also talks and tells us what he's like. He's a person. And he's all loving. And he's gracious. And he's merciful. And he's kind. Moses on one occasion said, God, show me your glory. 
I want to see you. And God said, you can't see my face and live. But I'm going to put you in the cleft of the rock and I'm going to pass by. I'll protect you. And the Bible says, Yahweh Elohim, the self-existent God, passed by and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, gracious and merciful and abundant in goodness and truth. The Bible teaches that the God who did not need a creator, that is self-existent, was never a time when he wasn't there, is a nice person. And he became, this is something my Muslim friends who are watching this telecast got a letter this week from a fine Muslim gentleman in Iran who is considering the truths he's hearing on this telecast. I want to send my greetings to the Muslim people who are watching this telecast. Now we have a big difference with you about God because our Bible teaches that God became a man. Now this doesn't mean he stopped being God, but he became a man. This is the heart of the Christian's faith. Come to John chapter 1 and verse 1 and onwards. John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Logos. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. And verse 14, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father full of grace and truth. The Bible says he was with God and he was God because he partook of the essence of God. You say to me today, Pastor Carter, I don't understand it. Well, neither do I because God cannot be understood. If he could, he would be just a man. What is God like? Well, when he became a man, he was still God, but he was fully a man. And when he became a man, see him with the little children. He cuddled them and hugged them and said, come to me. That's what he's like. See him with the woman who was caught by the religious leaders in the act of adultery. See how he didn't pick up stones to stone her, but he picked her up Amen. and said, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. See him with Mary when she comes in with the alabaster jar and pours $50,000 worth of perfume over his body. That's what, that's what it was worth, $50,000. Judas said, this money could have been saved and given to the poor. Jesus said, let her alone. Jesus was a defender of women. See him with the religious frauds and the hypocrites when he went into the temple and got a whip and drove them out and said, you've made my father's house a den of thieves. Get out. No wimp, this Jesus. Jesus was the best, the kindest, the most loving, the most loyal, the most trustworthy person this world has ever seen. And you and I would have loved him if we had met him. The most powerful on the Sea of Galilee, he hushed the sea to sleep in the midst of a storm. On one occasion, he called a dead man to life. He went to the tomb where a man was rotting away and said, Lazarus, come forth. You see, he was God in the flesh. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus, because then you're looking at the creator God. This God whom we worship, we say to our Muslim friends with great respect, is different to your Allah. 
Allah is the great God. He is the creator, but he is remote. And as my friend wrote to me this week from Iran, you cannot have a personal relationship with Allah because he is remote. I have news to tell you. We have a personal relationship with God because God became one of us and lived among us and died for our sins. That is what he is like. He is the first contestant. Eons ago, God created a mighty angel and gave him authority and power. He became the leader of billions of angels and angels have tremendous power. One angel is more powerful than the combined might of the United States Armed Forces. A million times more powerful. And this mighty angel who was at God's right hand was the leader of all the angels. He is alluded to in Ezekiel 28, 14. Please turn to this passage. Ezekiel 28, and verse 14. Isn't this interesting? Ezekiel 28 verse 14. He's talking here to the king of Tyre who was controlled by this evil angel. Verse 14. You were anointed as a guardian cherub for so I ordained you. You were on the holy mount of God. You walked among the fiery stones. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till wickedness was found in you. Verse 16. Through your widespread trade, you were filled with violence and you sinned. So I drove you in disgrace from the mount of God and I expelled you, O guardian cherub, from among the fiery stones. Your heart became proud on account of your beauty and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. In the book of Isaiah, in a chapter that talks about the city of the Babylonians, God says, how you have fallen from heaven, Lucifer, son of the morning. You said in your heart, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will sit upon the mountains in the sides of the north. I will become like the most high God. This magnificent creature created by God in some inconceivable way changed himself from the guardian angel into a devil. In the book of Genesis, he is portrayed as a supernatural sinister deceiver who comes to our first parents and says, did God say? And he is portrayed as uh, the serpent. The great seducer, the charming liar. Let me tell you what we don't believe. We don't believe that this person is a primitive spirit with horns, split hooves, bat wings, and a forked tail. That is the stuff of fantasy and uh, ignorant people. He is religious super intelligent, powerful, charming, good-looking, courageous, decisive, no wimp, persuasive, seductive, unscrupulous, malevolent, and the king of liars. Have you ever met a person like that? I have. I can remember once talking to a minister who was smooth and good-looking and charming and intelligent 
and decisive and uh, courageous and uh, seductive and a liar. He is like God a person. Jesus talked to him. You read it in the Gospels. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And in the end, Jesus said, get off with you. Devil, Satan, destroyer, be off with you. But let us not dismiss him like the foolish in this world as some simpleton or worse, some uh, strange animal. I want to read to you from Jack Provencher in the book Creation We Considered. And Jack Provencher has here an article on the great controversy and I am indebted to him for some of my material today. To engage in serious warfare with God, however, as in the great controversy, requires that the contenders for the throne be at least somewhat near the same league. Satan must surely be a uni universe class contender if we are to judge by the number and class of his followers. I once heard Christa Stendhal the dean of Harvard Divinity School and no unsophisticated primitive, by the way, say that it is impossible to deal rationally with the problem of evil without positing a personal devil. But don't think that this devil is an unsophisticated monkey. He has more intelligence than the greatest and then all the inhabitants of this earth. He is the mastermind. This great war is a spiritual battle for the souls of all of God's created beings. The stakes are immense. The angels, one third of whom have already joined him, the beings on the other worlds, this huge universe. You see, Satan offered the universe an alternative, a different way of doing business. There are two great philosophies. and Today we shall compare and contrast the two philosophies. A powerful representative of Satan's philosophy is the German philosopher, born in the second half of the 19th century, Frederick Nietzsche. And I want to read to you the words of this man who has had a tremendous impact upon the world and upon America today. I quote Nietzsche in his book, Der Antichrist. Listen carefully. What is good? Everything that heightens the feeling of power in man, the will to power, power itself. What is bad? Everything that is born of weakness. What is happiness? The feeling that power is growing, that resistance is overcome. Not contentedness, but more power. Not peace, but war. Not virtue, but fitness. What is more harmful than any vice? Active pity for all the failures and all the weak. Christianity. He knew his enemy. What type of man shall be bred, shall be will for being higher in value, worthier of life, more certain of a future? Even in the past, this higher type has appeared often, but as a fortunate accident, as an exception, never as something willed. In fact, this has been the type most dreaded, almost the dreadful, and from that dread, the opposite type was willed, bred and attained, the domestic animal, the herd animal, the sick human animal, the Christian. 
Christianity should not be beautified and embellished. It has waged deadly war against this higher type of man. It has placed all the basic instincts of this type under the ban. And out of these instincts, it has distilled evil and the evil one. The strong man is the typically reprehensible man, the reprobate. Christianity has sided with all that is weak and base, with all failures. It has made an ideal of whatever contradicts the instinct of the strong life to preserve itself. It has corrupted the reason even of those strongest in spirit by teaching men to consider the supreme values of the spirit as something sinful, something that leads to error as temptation. Christianity is called the religion of pity. Pity stands opposed to the tonic emotions which heighten our vitality. It has a depressing effect. We are deprived of strength when we feel pity. Quite in general, pity crosses the law of development, which is the law of selection. It preserves what is ripe for destruction. It defends those who have been disinherited and condemned by life and by the abundance of the failures of all kinds which it keeps alive. It gives life a gloomy and questionable aspect. What is good? Power. What is righteous? Strength. What is the most despicable? Pity. This man is without question one of the most influential thinkers in the history of the world. It is said that Adolf Hitler slept with a copy of the Antichrist under his pillow. Have you ever heard of the master Aryan race? and the storm troopers and the murder of the Jews. The weak go to the wall. The master race marches on. The same philosophy of Nietzsche got into the hands of the communists and caused the deaths of tens of millions of people. Might is right. Today we see what is left of Saddam and co. The same philosophy. We see it in the world. Violence, terrorism, the degradation of women. Slavery. Did you know there are more slaves being kept today in Africa than during the height of the slave trade? Did you know that? Slavery, pride, arrogance, it has fueled the Enrons of the world. Where the fat executives go with their palaces and their multi-millions as they climb over the shoulders of the workers and they say, might is right. Thank you, Mr. Nietzsche. It is the way of Satan. God has a different way. Nietzsche said, I spit on it. Matthew 20, 25 and onwards. And many people are still spitting on it. Maybe you're still spitting on it. Matthew 20, verse 25 and onwards. Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so among you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Mother Teresa, working with the untouchables, filthy lepers, 
Willie Jordan, down in the streets of Los Angeles, working with Los Angeles untouchables. Brian Dunn, an Australian missionary, medical worker from the Sydney Adventist Hospital, going to the island fields, and as he ministers, is stabbed, speared, Thursday night, when I got home late, I turned on television, and there I saw the remnants of the great hailstorm. Had you ever seen anything like it? <laughs> Los Angeles. We were so mad about it because when we got to our house, there was no rain at all. We'd missed out. But there was being interviewed a little old black lady whose home has been almost washed away. And she said, I've forgotten her name. My work is to collect toys for the little children here. I help the weak. Nietzsche would say, I wouldn't even spit on you. At the end of the great sermon on the little apocalypse, Matthew 25, Jesus spoke about the judgment of the world, the sheep and the goats, and said that the goats were condemned to hell because they did not care for the least of these, my brethren. The poorest. And Jesus said, the righteous will be saved because they cared for the least of these. There was something that Frederick Nietzsche hated more than anything else. He spoke about God, the God of the spider. The spider on the cross. What is more despicable than a Jew hanging on a cross and crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Naked before the world, he said, this is the worst of all sins. That was Satan talking. Because the cross is the power of God to salvation. God's weakness is God's strength. This world, this earth became a laboratory. The testing ground for two opposing philosophies. Don't blame God because we invited him in. That's the story of Genesis 3. Now I'm going to tell you something that I'm not going to be dogmatic on. As you know, I would never be dogmatic on anything. <laughs> but let me tell you some things. The last few years, I've been led, I believe, by the Spirit of God to open up my mind. The last thing I want to do is to become a person with a mind that's like concrete. Thoroughly mixed and firmly set. And sadly, many people who call themselves believers in God have disgraced the name of God by their narrow-mindedness and their bigotry. You know that is true. And have fought every progress in the history of the world. I've been studying geology because... Some years back, my kids said, look at this movie, Jurassic Park. It scared me to death. <laughs> but listen, there was Mr. T-Rex. Did you know how many? Millions. And millions of other fearful creatures. Millions and millions, billions of them. Creeping, oh, not creeping, running on those pigeon-toed feet. People say, some people who must be sleeping with a pillow on their heads continually say, well, we don't even think about those things because it disturbs our thinking. In fact, those things never happened. Oh, yes, they did. 
Everywhere you travel is the geological record. The geological record has a fair deal to say about these fearful predators and this raises a question that many people do not like to raise because it disturbs the concrete. Did God make T-Rex? Because God is the creator. Claws and teeth. The great famous British scholar, Darwin, spoke about the survival of the fittest. And did you know when Nietzsche got his ideas? From Charles Darwin. Do you know where Hitler got his ideas from Nietzsche who got them from Charles Darwin though Charles Darwin would have repudiated all the acts of these people. The survival of the fittest power is right. Might is right. But I have something to postulate today. As I think about a loving God and T-Rex this is something that the scientific world on the whole does not take into consideration but we do so there was on the earth a mastermind second only to God the greatest scientist in the history of the universe Maybe he too was billions of years old. I don't know, but he was very old and very wise. Don't you think he knew how to manipulate the genes? Don't you think it is possible that he took God's creation to demonstrate his better way of doing things and created a race of monsters based on the philosophy of the survival of the fittest. Because that's what the geological record tells us. With Jack Provencher, I have discovered an amazing truth that will be significant to you who are interested in science. The geological record is the story of the great controversy. It is the story of good and evil because in the geological record on occasions we see beauty. But more than beauty, more often we find horror and might. Violence, said Nietzsche, is the law of nature. No, it is not the law of nature. It is the law of Satan who was working on this earth. And when you look at things today, as you turn on television, you'll find that on the whole, his law is operating even among Christian businessmen. He has made a hell of paradise and he will finally be judged and thrown into hell because he will be judged by his works. What will be the final outcome of this great controversy? You all know the story that Nietzsche, when he was lecturing to a group of German university students, wrote on the blackboard, God is dead, signed Nietzsche. And after a little while, Nietzsche died, and a student went to the blackboard and wrote up, Nietzsche is dead, signed God. (laughs) So the outcome is absolutely certain. God will win. And in the Holy Scriptures, it tells us there was war in heaven. Michael, Christ, and his angels fought against the dragon. The dragon fought and his angels, but they were not strong enough. 
And then you read on in the book of Revelation and you can do so at your own pace. You read chapters like Revelation 19 and 20 that shows Christ, the shining knight in white armor who rides forth upon the horse. And the Antichrist is destroyed and thrown into the flames of hell. In the book of Revelation, love wins. Not force, not pride, not shrewd business deals, none of those things, but love. And in the final judgment that you can read about in the book of Revelation, the whole universe, after watching this great theater, planet Earth, the theater of the universe, after watching this great struggle that has gone on for so long, after seeing, contrasting, and comparing the two sides. The cry of the universe in the book of Revelation is, just and true are your ways, O King of the ages. So, look at me. There are two systems only two the deeds of your life and mine show us who is our master therefore I ask you in this great controversy between Christ and Satan whose side are you on